prophets per se, but um, in Zephaniah today, and now I invite you to turn there with me, please, where we left off at the 14th verse of Zephaniah, chapter 3, Zephaniah three fourteen. Zephaniah began, you may uh, remember, with one of the most terrifying descriptions of the judgment of God in all of Scripture. He began, of course, where he was led by God to begin. He wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with what we might call, understatement of the year, we might call it the bad news. But the bad news was not the only news. And for the last couple of installments from Zephaniah, we have heard also the good news. In fact, it's only been all the better, more wonderful good news for having followed immediately on the heels of the judgment of God. Now, as I say, Zephaniah began with the terror of God. Now he ends with one of the most breathtaking and moving descriptions in the scripture of the love of God. But first to the Lord in prayer. Holy Father, send rain on our parched ground, we pray. And let us hear words of joy and gladness with all of our hearts. And may our lives be conformed to this word as well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Zephaniah chapter 3 and beginning at verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout! O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, <coughs> let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is one of those days when the the preacher must feel, as always, of course, but today as much as ever when the preacher must feel completely inadequate to the task. Here is one of the most outstanding passages in all of Scripture, particularly on the love of God, and to preach it with any faithfulness at all seems something akin to the little child on the beach who digs his trench in a little hole in the sand and then opens his arms to direct the ocean to come in. So great is the depth and the height and the breadth of the love of God. We must 
be left where the Apostle Paul was, seeking to know and to preach that others might know as well. To know, he says, to know the unknowable. The love of God. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. So let me in weakness then, but in the strength that God provides, first point out to you that what we have here in the passage we've just read is a complete reversal of the effects of the fall. Zephaniah's book is like a microcosm of the whole history of God's redemption of mankind from the fall and judgment to redemption and restoration, and with man the whole earth. It is the record of paradise lost to paradise restored. And through it all, and in it all, and at the pinnacle of it all, we find this always rising to the top. The love, the unspeakable love of God. After pronouncing doom and horror, devastation and judgment, after shutting up the mouths of the people with horror, Zephaniah boldly and clearly now says, Sing, shout, rejoice, exult in your heart. Has he gone mad? After a message like he's just preached, now he he piles up one upon another every available expression for joy. Is he insane? Driven to the very brink by his own sermon, perhaps? No. No, he is elated. He is ecstatic. Why? Because his eyes have seen the glory of the Lord and it has rained down on him in the form of divine love. Look with me this morning at just two aspects of the love of God, and may he thrill your heart and mine as he did our fathers and mothers of old and make us exceedingly glad with his love. First, rejoice, Christians, and be glad for the powerful love of God. We are sometimes want to think, aren't we, of the love of God in terms of the modern popular conceptions of love, a conception that we hear on the car radio, a sort of soft thing, love as a cuddly thing, a harmless thing, a sentimental thing. Well, now you judge the love of God by its actions, dear flock. The love of God, the love of Yahweh, it is the love, verse 17, of the Mighty One who will save Only mighty one doesn't quite do justice to this word here. Mighty hero might be a little closer or or valiant warrior or something along those lines. The point is the love of God is not a soft and cuddly thing. It is a powerful thing. It is an active love. The love of God overpowers his enemies. We read in Scripture that the Lord goes forth as a warrior who marches against his foes. As the God of gods and the Lord of lords, as the mighty God, the the hero, he defends the orphan and the widow and the alien. What is more, verse 17, again, this Lord, your God is in your midst. 
This mighty hero, this valiant warrior, is the one who triumphs over our enemies and is right here with us, always and everywhere. Our mighty hero, valiant warrior, goes with us. And nothing, but nothing, can ever happen to us apart from his sovereign control and power. Not a hair can fall from my head or yours apart from his will. And so we have nothing to fear. Nothing at all. Christians loved with this love, you need not let your hands grow weak, as Zephaniah says. You needn't tremble or be worried or paralyzed about anything or anyone. Because God, your almighty God, the Lord of hosts, your valiant warrior is with you. Remember as a child being picked on by some bullies from the neighborhood. They'd had some run-ins with the law, you see, and that law just happened to be my father, who was a policeman. I can still see those 10-foot bullies. Well, they weren't exactly 10 feet tall, but they sure seemed like it at the time to little me. But boy, did they scatter in every direction all of a sudden. And I looked up and saw that my father had been watching the whole thing from the window. And when he came running full force around that fence, suddenly the whole situation was changed. And he put those chicken-livered bullies to flight. And the satisfaction and the joy and the triumph rose in my throat as I watched my father chase those hoodlums half a city block away. Brothers and sisters, there's coming a day, verse 19, when he will deal with those who oppress his people. And he will save the lame and the outcast, and their shame will be turned into praise and renown in all the earth. Whatever exactly that meant for the exiles who returned in Ezra's day and Nehemiah's, we know that there's coming an even greater judgment when our Lord Christ, our mighty warrior, will separate us from his enemies and ours. And we will be known for who we are, subjects of the King, children of our Heavenly Father. And it is the mighty love of our valiant warrior God that will accomplish this. Indeed, has already begun to do so. That's reason enough to rejoice. The power of the love of God. But there is yet a second reason for rejoicing. Second Christians rejoice and be glad for the personal love of God. Listen to this in verse 17. A verse that many people have called the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. In three short phrases, Zephaniah describes the love of God that has literally filled volume upon volume ever since. Look at these three phrases with me. First, God in his love will rejoice 
over you with gladness. Isaiah says something similar. He puts it in in marital terms. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. Now that is an amazing thing, isn't it? A wonderful thing. God rejoices over me, over you. God rejoices over you. Some Christians have an idea in their minds that they're saved, but they think of God always sort of glowering at them, sort of staring angrily at them all the time, like an angry father who who saves, but only grudgingly saves. As though his son Jesus somehow saved us through a a loophole, and barely so. Or maybe we imagine God, like some of your fathers may have been, sort of looking always over your head, always sort of ignoring you, or, or just barely tolerating you. Well, banish those thoughts from your minds, and instead see God rejoicing over you. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Well, guess who's leading the party? Guess who's rejoicing the loudest of all? God rejoices over you, Christian. How about that for a picture to savor and to consider and to live by? God rejoicing over you. Why? Because you are the fruit of his redemptive work. Because you are the trophy of his redemption. Because you are the workmanship of his hands in Christ Jesus. But should God get this excited about you? Really? And isn't it just a little bit unseemly, a little bit undignified for, for God to rejoice over you? Remember Michal when she looked out the window and saw David rejoicing and, and dancing for joy? And she, she, she despises David in her heart for doing that. Do you remember that episode? Do you remember what happened after that? Michal is struck barren for the rest of her life. Christians don't despise God rejoicing over you. This picture of him in his gladness over you, glory in it, Christians, bathe in it. But you say, am I not at times displeasing to my father? Yes, you are. Yes, you are. By your sin, you displease him, you wander from him, you try him. And yes, you anger him, and so do I. There are times when we cast a veil between ourselves and God by our sin. But when we repentantly return, he does not come dragging his feet to us with a scowl on his face. He runs out to meet us with a robe and a ring and a fattened calf. He rejoices in you. 
fix that amazing image in your mind, Christians. The almighty creator of the universe who, who spoke everything into being by the word of his power, who directs every atom of the entire universe, even now, by his providence, but has never made a point of saying that he rejoices over that. Yet he rejoices over you. Second, Zephaniah says, he will quiet you by his love. Now, there are a number of technical reasons, and I could go into them this morning, but I'm afraid it would be more an exercise in boredom than really an edifying thing. But there are a number of linguistics and textual reasons for preferring the translation of the New American Standard Version here, which reads thus, he will be quiet in his love. The effect not being that he will quiet us, but a better translation being that he will be quiet in his love. He will be quiet himself. In other words, the picture here is of God. God quietly absorbing his, himself and his attention on you and his love for you. He, he, he sinks into quietness as he considers his elect, his chosen ones, and he becomes consumed by his love for us and for all of his children. Now, I don't pretend to be able to explain this to you. I wouldn't even dare say or imagine such a thing if it were not the scripture itself telling us it is so. This love surpasses our ability to comprehend it. Charles Spurgeon exhorted his congregation to remember the silence of Jesus and to expound this text thereby. Whether we should take that advice from Spurgeon as an exact exegetical tool or as simply a homiletic flair of Spurgeon, his great flair of preaching, uh, either way, we may certainly take this advice, especially during this Lenten season in which we are today, this week, and consider the silence of Christ. Consider the silence of Christ in his trial, in his crucifixion. He did not open his mouth, he was silent. Instead, in the contemplation of obedience to his Father and love for his sheep, he becomes the sheep who is dumb, who is silent before his shearers. In silent love, he lays down his life for you. And now he silently keeps sentry over you with a love that cannot will not change ever. Here our Lord is resting in his love for us, quiet in his love for us, never changing. His love abides ever the same for you, Christian. And if he rests in that silent resolve of love for you, then nothing and no one in all the world can possibly separate you ever from that love. Now that third phrase from verse 17. In his love for us, he will exalt over you with loud singing. 
This is the most astounding of them all, isn't it? Just imagine Almighty Jehovah singing over you. The divine breaks out in song. And what a song it must be. Imagine it. John Piper did several years ago, let his imagination loose and asked his congregation, can you imagine what it would be like if you could hear God singing? Remember that it was merely a spoken word that brought the universe into existence. What would happen if God lifted his voice and not only spoke but sang? Perhaps a new heaven and a new earth would be created. God says something almost just to that effect in Isaiah 65. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. When God spoke at the beginning, the heavens and the earth were created. Perhaps at the end, the new earth and new heavens will be created when God exalts over his people with loud singing. He goes on. When I think of the voice of God singing... I hear the booming of the Niagara Falls mingled with the trickle of a mossy mountain stream. I hear the blast of Mount St. Helens mingled with the kitten's purr. I hear the power of an East Coast hurricane and the barely audible puff of a night snow in the woods. And I hear the unimaginable roar of the sun, 865,000 miles thick, 1,300,000 times bigger than the earth, and nothing but fire. One million degrees centigrade on the cooler surface of the corona. But I hear this unimaginable roar mingled with the warm crackling of the living room logs on a cozy winter's night. And when I hear this singing, I stand dumbfounded, staggered, speechless, that he is singing over me. With all his heart and with all his soul. That is the love of God, dear congregation. It is the powerful love that defends us, that will bring, even now, is bringing justice to bear upon our enemies for our sakes and for his own glory. And it is that personal love that first rejoices and then hushes in quiet consideration and then breaks forth with divine song for you and for me who have been redeemed by that very same love. And because of that love, Christians, you have it all. You have everything because of that love. You have forgiveness of sin, verse 15, for the Lord has taken away the judgments against us. You have victory, for he has cleared away your enemies. You have God right here with you, verse 17, in your very midst. And you have a home, verse 19, because he has gathered the outcasts. In short, says Martin Luther, Deus meus et omnia. God is mine, and everything is mine. Will the rest of your life be easy then? Are your days going to be a breeze from here on out? Or remember that Zephaniah was preaching to a people who were going to face terrible times. 
awful times. Remember that he was preaching before the Babylonian exile was to come. Many tears would be shed and remain to be shed. Many heartbreaking sadnesses yet to undergo. And the fact is you and I have many sad days ahead of us too. We will weep as a congregation together in days to come. There is no doubt about it. Unless the Lord should come first. We will mourn together. But this much is sure. The love of God is changeless. The love of God will not end for his children Even as we weep and mourn, God can rejoice over us because he knows that he has planned beforehand every one of those tears before they fall from your cheeks. For your good, he has planned them. And for his glory, with a love that goes beyond telling and beyond knowing. In our darkest days, we may say with Martin Luther, God is mine, and everything is mine. What then? As Schaefer put it, how then shall we live? If God loves us like this, how shall we respond? Well, we end where we began. Zephaniah was not crazy. He had not lost his marbles. He got it exactly right. Sing aloud. O daughter of Jerusalem, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with your heart. In other words, while God exalts over you, you exalt in him. While God rejoices over you, you rejoice in him. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Live always in his love, Christian. Do not forget the loving gaze of your Father that is fixed upon you 24-7 rejoices over you, is silent over you, breaks forth an exalted song over you. You listen for the sound of that song with the ears of your hearts, Christians, which is faith. And hearing it, you fix your ears on that divine symphony and keep it ever in your hearing. And then let it flow through you, brothers and sisters, Oh, from your heart and across your lips and to the heights of heaven. And in so doing, form that unbroken circle of love. God's love for you, your love for God. A beautiful oratorio. The most glorious music in all the world. The circle of love between God and you and from your heart. To his. Amen.